<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Mick Garris, and once again, we are here with the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything, and asking me your questions is none other than producer Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? I am doing well, Mick. How are you? Uh, never better, sort of. <laughs> well, hey, you got the vaccine, though. That's pretty exciting. I did. I got the first injection, so uh, give me another couple of weeks, and I will be running free. Absolutely. So how, how was it? I mean, I think people are so curious about the process. Well, we waited in line in a two mile long line oh my over two hours, but uh, we got it and it was painless. It was simple. It was quick. Uh, you know, I, afterwards you get a pain in your shoulder for a couple of days, but I, no, other, uh, no other after effects from that whatsoever. That's, that's great. That's incredible. Yeah. I cannot yeah. wait to get stuck. Yes, so. I'm encouraging everybody to do it. Yeah, as, as we should. So hopefully our listeners will uh, heed that advice. Uh, you want to jump into some questions? I think we'd better. That's what we're here for. All right. I'm going to hit you with, as always, one of the most challenging ones up front. Oh, the ones that make me shiver. Yeah. <laughs> this one might because it's kind of chilly. Ryan asks, Mick and Joe, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? <laughs> well, as most of you know, I am vegan. Yep. So uh, I don't eat regular ice cream. They have now, vegan ice creams, though. They do, and they're good. There's an oat milk ice cream that I like that you can buy. But the best is a sorbet. There's a place oh. called the Gelato Bar in Studio City. And they make a chocolato sorbetto, which is a chocolate sorbet that's as creamy as any ice cream. And it's dark chocolate. And it is amazing. You won't believe it was made without dairy. So there's my recommendation. And they better give me a free one on, on that. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. And Joe, what about you? Uh, me? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty basic. Uh, chocolate ice cream is kind of my weakness, you know? Not even Rocky Road or something. You know? I mean, you know, I mean, I guess I, I, I'm a real sucker for Ben and Jerry's fish food. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so I guess maybe that's that's probably my go to. But I mean, honestly, like there's nothing more than I, I like than uh, just a, a good chocolate milkshake. I think that's kind of my favorite. Uh, OK, so. well, we broke the ice on AMA with ice cream. So absolutely. All right. Let's get into some some deeper cuts. Uh this one is another one for both of us, actually. Chad asks, Mick and Joe, when you watch movies at home, do you give them your full undivided attention or do you glance back and forth at your phones? I never have my phone with me when I'm watching a movie. Oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> even at home. No, I have an 86-inch monitor and surround sound, the whole deal. I give a movie the respect that it deserves. Now, if it's a piece of crap, <laughs> that doesn't mean that I will go from beginning to end. I feel like uh, then, then that's when I get text messages. 
Uh, That's right. <laughs> no, I, I rarely have a tablet or a phone with me when I'm committing to a movie. I I try, you know, when it's a new movie I haven't seen before, uh, yeah. to to put the phone somewhere else or. You know, hopefully it's dead and I can go plug it in in another room. That that really helps. But I think you're right. As soon as the movie starts to to lose me, I'm like, oh man, I wonder what's going on on Twitter. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't do that. I, I, you know, my my phone and my tablets are in the other room when I'm watching a movie in the living room. That's great. That's not super smart. It's the best way to do it. Um, Josh wants to know if there's a non-horror director that you would like to see tackle the genre? Well, you know, he's come to several of the Masters of Horror dinners and uh, Quentin Tarantino is a guy who, although he has dabbled in it as a mm -hmm. writer, mm -hmm. never really committed to a full-on horror movie as a writer-director. And right. I would love to see what he would do with that. Um, I, I think he knows the genre inside and out in these conversations we've had at those dinners and the like. Um, and I know he's got a passion for it. I would love to see him do it. Although supposedly he's only got one more movie left in him. That's what he says, but you know, Soderbergh retired and then he unretired too. So, you know, and Stephen King did the same thing. So. Yeah. I, well, here's a question though. I mean, you know, what do you, do you feel death proof is more just a, a kind of, genre throwback and, and less a horror film or more, more yeah, thriller? It's, it's a thriller. It's a yeah. genre throwback. It's a, it's a, it's a, a the hat, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's, I wouldn't call it a horror movie, you know, Planet Terror was a horror movie. Absolutely. And a science fiction horror movie. Yeah. Um, no, I, I just love to see what he would, what he would do. I, I think there's a lot of people who would echo that as well. Uh, yeah. it's, it's funny that you brought up QT because Hartvig uh, asks what your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie is. You know, I'm a huge fan, uh, but I would have to say that um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was born in L.A., I've been, you know, spent so much time in Hollywood and Los Angeles, and he treats it with such reverence and knowledge he recreated the parts of, of Los Angeles of my youth. And I just think it's so clever what he, how he handled it and where the movie ended up in a surprising way that nobody expected, yeah. but it's, it's hilarious. It's career best performances for people like Brad Pitt and Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. And uh, I mean, it, it, it just really, it really rings all the bells for me. I, I really, really enjoyed it. It's one that's really grown on me over time. I, I've been I've been meaning to revisit it, and this actually might have inspired me to finally go back and do it. Yeah, I, I saw it three times within the first month it was out. Yeah, my, my favorite is still Kill Bill. I just, it blew me away when I saw it in college, and it just, it actually kind of pushed me in, in the direction of going into movies. So, uh -huh. uh, yeah, there you go. You know, Parts one and two, I assume. I, I love them both. Yeah. Uh, but I have a I have a special special place in my heart for the House of Blue Leaves. The action sequence is just it's just masterful. No, he's he's an amazing filmmaker. Yes, he is. Uh, Ahmed wants to know if there's a specific genre you haven't explored yet uh, that you would still like to. Is there anything outside of horror that you would ever want to do? Is there a, a yeah. Mick Garris musical or a Mick Garris comedy? 
I never intended to be a horror director, although I was always drawn to it. Uh, and it would be the first choice of the kind of genre movie I, I had made over the years. But I've always wanted to do other things, not necessarily a Western, but a period movie, um, a, a, a really kind of satirical comedy that's not just funny ha-ha or frat boys in hell, but something, you know, a, a Dr. Strangelove or something. Oh, um, yeah. Is something that has some meat on its bones. Um, and I would love to do, I did a legal thriller as a two-part miniseries called The Judge, but I would love to do something like that, um, to do, uh, you know, there, there are so many great courtroom dramas and they are inherently dramatic. The, I, I really am a sucker for legal thrillers and courtroom dramas. Yeah, you've always spoke really fondly about that experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nobody watched it, but that's okay. <laughs> hey, you know what? It was, it was a great, it was such a great outside of the box experience for you. I, 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 it, yeah. it was, it yeah. was, yeah. it was a challenging cast, but other than that. <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny you brought up Westerns because Bartolo asks, what is your favorite Western? You know, one of my very favorite of all time, and it's not just because I have a tiny little cameo in it, is Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead. It has an amazing cast, Sharon Stone, Pat Hingle, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, you know, just really amazing people. And it's funny and knowing. It's like he'd seen every single one of the Italian spaghetti westerns, knew what he was doing. He's zooming in at all the right times and like, but it's there's never a dull moment. And for me, you know, westerns from my childhood and around that era are just so kind of threadbare and the same. But he brought such a sense of joie de vivre and cinematic fun to the making of a Western. And it works on all, all of its cylinders, you know, as a Western, as a send up without it being a spoof or a parody. Yeah. And I think Sam is such a gifted filmmaker and has so many facets to the diamond of his talent that I would love to see him do more like that. I, I completely agree. I also know you were a big fan of Hateful Eight, which, I mean, I guess it's more an Agatha Christie, but it is, it is still very much a Western. It's a Western, and I loved it, and I love the way it played out, and I love the cast, you know, and to be able to pull off a movie that's two and a half hours long okay. or longer uh, <laughs> in, you know, it opens up, and it's a 70-millimeter film. It opens up with this vast, expansive exterior in the snow and all but 95% of the movie takes place in one room. And just to have choreographed it and staged it, it's, it's quite a feat, but yeah. it's still cinematic. It could be like a stage play, but it's not. It's in the hands of Quentin Tarantino. So the, the tools of cinema are at play here in a really wonderful way. You know, uh, there's like an extended, extended version on Netflix, right? It's like a cut up into like a miniseries. Yeah, it's a two-part miniseries. It's four hours long. I have not seen that yet. I haven't yet I haven't. either. I, it's something that's on my to-do list when I find a bucket of time. But uh, uh, Justin is a member of IOTC working on film crews and wants to know what your suggestion would be 
to help him make the tr transition to writing and directing? Well, the same uh, recommendations I would give to somebody who wasn't working on a film crew is writing, mm -hmm. you know, getting a script together. And because you are a, a film crew member, you have access and friendships with people who can help you fulfill your vision where you can get the equipment, where you can get the crew members together to actually do the work in putting it onto digital media. Um, so if you are a professional working within the industry, then you have access to professional tools and that puts you five steps ahead. But the most important thing is the script. You can dazzle with your filmmaking and that can take you far. But if you start out with a really good script and then filmmaking ability upon uh, the top of that, then that's the way to do it. But, I, you know, it all starts with the script, with the story, with the characters. And don't cast your friends unless they're the most <laughs> talented people you have access to. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, the, the thing about the script is it, it can show that you can tell the story over the two hour span, you know? Yeah, and um, I'd rather see a really good script directed competently and not flashily than a totally empty content movie that is mind-blowingly visual. And uh, you and I have had that conversation about many a movie, so I know that's true. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Galactic, uh, Galactic Video asks, and this, this question intrigues me because this is something I've never heard. Uh, hmm. Can you please give a detailed rundown <laughs> of what the unmade Eddie Murphy film Black Sheep would have been? What, what is he talking about, Mick? I was hired by Paramount back in the 80s to write an Eddie Murphy comedy, uh, action comedy called Black Sheep, where... Uh, it's these t twins, but they are estranged. And, uh, you know, it ended up, there ended up being a movie called Black Sheep come out from Paramount, but it was not that Related. story. Got it. And so Eddie, the street Eddie becomes a CIA operative Eddie uh, through a mix up of identities. And I couldn't give you a detailed breakdown of it because I don't even remember it. It was so <laughs> long ago. It never got made. It would was. He, play, he would have played both characters. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So Prince and the Popper kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. I remember having a blast doing it and writing a comedy was great. But one of the things they told me at the studio is don't write the jokes. Eddie will put the jokes in. So oh. <laughs> it was a very interesting studio note, like one I've never gotten before or since. Interesting. Uh, do you think? Do you think that that note in particular might have hindered the movie from moving forward? Like what? Like like like? Do you think that it skewed their read? Maybe he, he took on another project. Got it. Okay, that's during right. during the writing of this, and you never know why a movie doesn't get made for any number of reasons. Sure. Yeah, not always sometimes because they don't like it, but not always. It's like yeah. Eddie's doing something and part two or three or, so funny. i never would have thought they would have been like don't don't worry about the jokes yeah <laughs> i could totally but, you, see know, you still you still write it with a sense of humor sure. if there are jokes yeah, that, that's why i said i could just i could see yeah. a studio exec saying that and then reading it and going this isn't funny yeah <laughs> no it was it was still a funny script but it yeah i'm sure it was time, yeah at that time in the 80s and and the, the 90s 
uh, I was a writer for hire as well. And right. I wrote a number of things that never got made. Uh, we, we've talked about some of them before, and I'm sure they'll continue to come up. Before we move off the subject, just because I'm, I'm so morbidly fascinating, because this is the first I've ever heard of it. Uh, uh, how, so, so did you, did you connect with Eddie ahead of time and develop the pitch or was it something the studio wanted to do and you pitched on it? How did it kind of, the studio wanted it done. I didn't even need to pitch. They came to me and wow. hired me to write this. Um, they had a basic idea. I came up with a treatment and then I wrote a full screenplay. Amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was things, a different time. The things you learn on Ask Mick Anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. James writes, Mick and Joe, creatively, do you prefer to write or direct more? And what are your favorite parts of each process? Well, that question has come up before. Um, I like both of them equally, but for entirely different reasons. Um, they are very different jobs. I like being solitary when I'm devising a screenplay, when I'm writing and just not having any distractions, um, no consideration of, of what we can or can't do what are the rules? Who is the cast? Um, where's our locations? What's our budget and all of that? I, I love the process of writing. I truly love it. But the process of directing means the movie is greenlit. It's getting made. You're surrounded by dozens of talented people inspiring you. You're moving forward and it's a very social process. And I appreciate the isolation of writing, but I also appreciate the social aspects of directing and interacting with people who are also feeding you with their creativity. It's a two-way street. And so I have to say, I love both of them equally. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. I think I might lean more towards directing more just because I love collaborating with people and I love solving problems and, and yeah. I feel like all you do is solve problems all day long. So it's, I don't yeah. know, it's something that I feel like I'm, I'm very naturally uh, attuned to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there is, especially when you're writing the first draft of the script, there's something so free and wonderful and it's, it's the movie you want to make and it's a movie in your head. It's, it's, it's completely unvarnished, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's nobody in the way. Yeah. And that, that can be a really, uh, freeing and, and wonderful thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. But both processes are great. Directing is a lot more stress and yes. the bigger the project, the, the higher the stress levels. But, um, but I thrive under that. I agree. I, well, I mean, it's, there, there's still plenty of stress in screenwriting too, though, because once you start getting into the notes, pro eh, the notes process can be anxiety ridden yeah. too. Yeah, but, but you have to know how to deal with that and not take it personally and, and sure. realize that, all they want is to know that you're paying attention to them. It's not a demand that you address all of those notes specifically, but to have you think about them and to be able to have a conversation with them and explain why their idea either works or it doesn't and fool them into thinking that the way you addressed their notes was the way they wanted them to. So. Uh, I can, I could, honestly, it's, it's brilliant and, and great and true advice. Uh, Richard wants to know, since you were there around the time of release, uh, what was Universal's take on the thing before it came out? Did they think they had a hit on their hands? 
And how did they react when it underperformed? They thought they had a hit on their hands until they released it. And then they blamed ET. They said, people want to see positive family life affirming movies about aliens rather than claustrophobic, all male uh, horror movie of the most grotesque sort. So, but the thing has gone on to become bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. And I would be willing to bet it sells more video or rents more video rentals than E.T. does these days. E.T. was, you know, the biggest release at its time and is still a great movie and everybody loves it. But genre fans talk about the thing to this day, not so much E.T. I think there's a lot of people who would say, you know, I, I think my favorite John Carpenter movie is still Halloween, but I think most people would agree and I agree that the thing is his best movie. Yeah. And and I think I think most people would also agree that E.T. is probably not Spielberg's best movie. Uh, so there there is kind of an interesting, but I do still love E.T. And I saw it at the Hollywood oh, yeah. Bowl. I saw it at the Hollywood Bowl a couple of years ago. Oh, with John Williams. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, just been conducting. And and I gotta say, you, you know, you see all these young kids watching it and it still works. Yeah. And I, I was working on publicity on both of those movies. Yeah. So at Universal at the time in 82. So, uh, you know, I saw that. Um, and, you know, I was in those marketing meetings on how to sell ET and Spielberg saying, you know, we want to make sure that people don't think this is a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Because at that time, sequels only made half of what the originals did. (laughs) Now it's it's the other way around. But um, to just watch that marketing stuff in progress, which is still mind boggling to me. But Carpenter's movie, it was never seen as going out to as wide an audience because it was an R-rated film too. But they thought it was going to be very successful and everybody was enthusiastic about it. But the problem with major studios is uh, if it doesn't perform on opening weekend, you can kiss it goodbye. Right. And they were, I mean, I I don't have the dates in front of me, but it was only a couple weeks in between, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there would, it it was two weeks in between, um, uh, might've been one week in between E.T. and Poltergeist coming out. Talk about Uh, tripping over your own feet. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but those did well. Um, oh yeah yeah well i mean that's that's the problem when you have big big studio movies coming out every week is there's there's eventually going to be one that doesn't work and that doesn't necessarily mean you know it's a a bad movie uh no no i mean everybody was into it people were excited about it but they knew it was aimed at a a more limited audience yep yep uh stars fan d asks what is next on your to-do list as in the film industry, not your honey-do list? <laughs> not my honey-do list. What's, what's next on the, the list uh, in terms of things that you can talk about, Nick? Well, there are a lot of things that um, are hopefully coming together. There's a spec script that I wrote that has just been optioned by producers that would be something not in the horror genre, something a very different kind of movie uh, that has... A, a wider mainstream appeal, although it still has the darkness you might expect from my mind. Um, and, and I read it and it's good. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Uh, and then Clive Barker and I are planning to create a new anthology series together. And uh, 
So we are just now uh, about to start pitching that, but we put together a, a treatment and a philosophical uh, point of view on how to do it. It will all be made in the UK should it come to pass, but I'm very excited about that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always writing whether things get made or not, just because I love it. And you're not a writer if you don't write. I agree. I agree. Well, Mick, that's what I got for this episode. All right. That's great. Great questions. And uh, if you have questions you want to ask me, just uh, go to Joe Russo tweets or Mick Garris PM on Twitter uh, and on Instagram and drop us a line with your questions. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.